You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. We'll get into Acts chapter 2, verse 44. This is only like our fourth week in Acts chapter 2, so obviously we're cruising through the book. I wonder who the president will be when we finish Acts. I mean, even if Obama gets elected another four, I'm still not sure. I'm sure you guys will help with that. Just kidding. Lord, as we look at a vibrant, living, active, missional, living, giving church this morning. Lord, just as we studied last week, we want Calvary Chapel of Crook County to model the book of Acts. And we pray that today, Lord, just uh, in reflection of your grace, we would be able to just be all that you have for us, God. Not a thing more, not a thing less, Lord. We want to be right where you want us. Let your word go forth with power, with love, with grace, with conviction, and with compassion this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2, we've been studying that on the day of Pentecost, Peter seized the opportunity to preach the gospel to thousands of Jews. Uh, the, The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Peter and the apostles, 120 apostles, and it opened up an incredible opportunity to share the gospel. Peter then went in to share this message showing Jesus from the Old Testament, how Jesus is the one who was prophesied by the prophets of being the Messiah and rising from the dead after being martyred or murdered uh, as, as the Christ. And so, you know, as we looked last week in verse 37, as the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They heard the gospel. They realized it was them that crucified Jesus. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We killed God. What should we do? It's a good question. And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord, our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized in that day, about 3000 souls were added to them. So they went from 126 to 3000. That's something like 26 times the size of the church that they were at that point. Radical growth. Uh, and they continued, we see. So now they have this massive amount of people in a brand new church. No one knows exactly what they're doing in church leadership at this point. Uh, but they're led by the Holy Spirit. In verse 42, we have, you know, the... Uh, the, uh, the incredible example for us as a church today, New Testament Christianity, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so we looked at this last week in depth. If you weren't here last week, it was the 4th of July. There's a lot going on. We had a relay race in town. I encourage you, listen to that Bible study. Listen to that Bible study. It is the vision statement for our church that we will continue steadfastly. We will give ourselves. We will be diligent to continue in doctrine, in this church, we will continue in doctrine, studying the word, going verse by verse through the Bible that we could say like Paul, I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God in Acts chapter 20. And we will continue steadfastly as Calvary Chapel, Crook County in fellowship, koinonia, commonness. 
That's something this church is given to. Breaking of bread, love feasts, or communion even. Something this church will continue steadfastly in. And prayer, steadfastly giving ourselves to prayer. I plead with you, if you consider yourself a part of this church, to listen to last week's Bible study. Even if you don't consider yourself part of this church, if you consider yourself part of the church, uh, you know, listen to that study. But I mentioned last week that, uh, you know, the elders are actually, we're praying, we're waiting on the Lord, and we feel like the Lord is leading us to, you know, in, in reflection of Acts 2, 42, how can we best accomplish this in Prineville? With the jobs that we have, with the men that are working the way they are, with the wives working the way they are, you know, with the reality of people's schedules, with the reality of, you know, the, the amount of help we've had with children's ministry and, you know, so on and so forth. And you can be praying. Today the elders have a meeting. It's our meeting of the month uh, today. And we're going to be discussing kind of just a change in the weekly schedule. We're going to have our Sunday mornings on Friday. Now. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, that might come up, but I don't know. What we feel the Lord is leading us to do, and and you can be praying. Of course, this is all up in the air. The Holy Spirit, we're waiting on him to give us specifics. But to move home fellowships for about the, the length of the school year, to move them to Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights will be home fellowship. There's such radical fruit that's been produced in home fellowships. People are being discipled. People are growing in prayer. People are understanding the word. People are having community. And so, you know, we feel like the Lord is leading us for a period of time. And and we don't really know exactly what that is. We we sense we're getting that direction. Pray for us. But that, you know, we're going to be moving that to Wednesday night so that it's a little less off your plate the week. You don't have four nights a week where you're out till 10 o'clock at night, not that late, but you know, uh, so be praying for us for that. Um, you know, there's some other things in play that we're working through what that would look like, but you know, as we're just accountable to God and we're seeking the Lord on your behalf, that you guys can best grow in doctrine. Every one of you that you guys can best grow in fellowship, you know, koinonia and best grow in breaking of bread from house to house. We're going to study today and in prayer. How can that, you can't make it to every Wednesday night and every pulse and every men's group and every home fellowship and every women's group. So what does that look like in this church? We're just examining that. We feel like the Lord is giving us a vision and, uh, and pray, pray for us. Well, yeah. So anyways, as that was happening, they continued in that fear. Verse 43 came upon every soul. Isn't it incredible? What happens when, when a church is doing what the Lord wants it to do? Fear comes upon every soul. The fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. There was a refiner's fire that was happening in the people's lives. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. We looked last week on how to test the spirits and see if a wonder and a sign is really from the Lord. Obviously, the apostles were operating within those uh, those signs and the wonders which validated the gospel that they preached. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. So we want to do some basic Bible observation here. Okay. Who is in this passage? Believers, all who believe those who put their trust and their faith in Christ. Now, remember Pentecost happened right in a matter of days of what we're reading here. Okay. It went from 120 people, the church to 3,120. That's an incredible jump in growth. 
What was happening on the day of Pentecost were people were from all sorts of different nations. At least 17 different nations were in Jerusalem celebrating Passover. They're in Jerusalem. They get saved. What do you think they do? Load up the minivan and go back to Egypt? Go back to, you know, Rome? Go back to... what? No, what is this faith we've heard of? Who is this Jesus? They stayed in Jerusalem. And they became disciples and they went to the little Bible college that was there, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the other three things. There were 3,000 people that were not natives to Jerusalem and there were needs. They were lonely. They were a little scared being in a new town, not having tons of friends. What was going on in Jerusalem after Pentecost? Population explosion in the church with foreigners there. That's an incredible thing. There's revival happening in Jerusalem. What an exciting time this was. But we have the believers here. All who believed were together, together, and they had all things in common. There was a common-ness. It's the word koinonia without the nia. It's koina, and it means common. It's the root of fellowship, a commonness. What did they have in common? Basic Bible observation here. What did they have in common? All things. Faith in Jesus. They believed in Jesus and that led to a commonness in all things. And man, isn't that the root of all of our friendships? Isn't knowing Jesus the root of all of our friendships, all of our relationships, all of our dinner parties? I mean, man, I have more fellowship and more in common with my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do with some of my own relatives. It's so sad to have grown to a place where, you know, my relatives and I just aren't as close anymore because we're not like-minded on the most important thing in my life, knowing Jesus. Now you've got 3,120 people that have the main thing in common, Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And now everything else trickles down and puts them in right place. Everything else was in common then because the head of their life was the same. And so there was this commonness. Verse 45, so what happened? They sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. So possessions, goods were sold, divided as what? Underline it, anyone had need. So a fruit of this revival was men and women who were willing to give up all of their possessions and to share with those who were in need. Now, as we look at uh, the, the, the couple select scriptures we're going to look at today, we want to look at what in the scriptures are prescriptive and what are descriptive. What are things that are prescribed to the church that are necessary for health and life and vitality? And what are things that were descriptive for the church, where it was at in that time, with that people group, so on and so forth? What's prescriptive and what's descriptive? Now, how do we arrive at either one of those? Well, we look at the whole of Scripture and we look at the practices in the whole of Scripture. It's not about what I want to do or what I don't want to do. It's about good exegesis of Scripture. And so we see this community that's going on. We see Uh, People selling their possessions and goods and then dividing them among all as anyone has needs. 
We look at the Qumran community from the time of Jesus that just by the Dead Sea, this community, and I've been to the ruins of the Qumran community. They were people that liked their hot tubbing, you know, they had these nice baths, but they were all people that were like John the Baptist. In fact, some think John the Baptist kind of went over to the Qumran community and then uh, kind of went not too far away to the Jordan River and had that ministry there because the people were that you know, health well, or uh, the, the kind of the granola community of the day, you know, the wear the camel's hair and eat the locusts and honey, you know, and have a leather belt, whatever, you know. But, uh, you know, that was the Qumran community, but they, they had all things in common. This is the community that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Awesome community, awesome community. Loved the Word of God. We're a very communal group. If anyone joined the group, they basically pooled all of their stuff into the giant treasure house, storehouse, and then that was used throughout the rest of the community as anyone had need. No doubt the people had heard about the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head. Birds and you know, birds of the air and foxes have places to stay, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, hey, you know, let's this is life. No possessions. No, you know, let's just put it all together and then we'll share it all. Then you look at the Huterite people, the Huterite people, which uh, were, were a type of Mennonite or Anna, uh, Anabaptist, if I'm saying that right. Uh, the Huterite people in Austria endeavored back in the 14th century to do this. And their influential leader, Mino Simmons, who the Mennonites are named after, um, even he believed that the Jerusalem experiment was neither universal nor permanent. That what was happening in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it wasn't a universal thing, the way that it was done, nor was it a permanent thing, the way it was done. So it wasn't a prescription, but it was description. Now, Jesus does call some people to total poverty. You look at the rich young ruler, and Jesus said, you go sell everything that you have, and give it up and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he didn't want to get rid of those things. Jesus knew that his riches were his idol and were holding him back from all out discipleship. So for him, the cost was all of his wealth. For another, someone's wealth is not their idol. They just realize they're just a steward of what God has given them and they use all of their wealth and treasures to the glory of God and for the furtherance of his kingdom. And so the question is given to us as we walk through the scriptures, as we walk through Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, what do we do with all of our stuff? How much stuff do we have? I have so much stinking stuff and I have moved every year I've been married except for two years. Every year I move the same stuff and I never use it anymore. I just put it in the corner of the garage. Someday I'm going to use that s'mores maker. Someday. When am I going to use that stinking thing? What do I do with, man, I just about three times a year, I clean my garage all out, got my little workout area because I do so much of that, you know, and holy cow, in a month, it's crammed and cluttered back together. I'll open my garage door, just drive by my house today and you'll see what I mean. Okay. And I'm guessing that I'm just like you guys. What do we do with all of this stuff? Now, neither Jesus nor his disciples forbid accumulation of possession. You know, people had homes all throughout the book of Acts. People had homes. We're going to see some people sell them, but some people kept them. People had homes or else there wouldn't have been home fellowships. There wouldn't have been continuing from house to house. 
But the people in Acts were committed with all of their heart and all of their mind. Now we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 4 verse 32. We're going to do our big study of this section this week. Because Acts 4.32 is almost parallel to Acts chapter 2 verse 44. And, and we'll do our basic Bible observation here and see if you can see how it parallels. Acts 2 verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed, so who are we talking about here? Believers were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So who is it? Believers. What was their attitude? They were of one heart and one soul. There was a commonness here. Now, I love this verse that says, uh, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Nobody said, that's my stuff. There's a lot of us in this room that have three-year-olds, you know, or have recently had three-year-olds. Holy cow, dude, it doesn't have to be yours. That's my pop. I share it with mommy, but it's mine. Is that mine? We were Wendy's the other day. That's 500 times the word mine came out of my sweet, precious little boy's mouth. No, neither did anyone say that what they had was their own, Russell. It's in the Bible, Acts chapter 4, you know. That went over real well. Now, no one said, that's my stuff. It was their stuff, but nobody said, that's mine. It was theirs, but nobody was selfish with what they had. New Living Translation says, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. Boy, there's been some conviction in me as I've studied this. Nobody felt that what they owned was their own. It's in me. It's in me. That's my Chevy pickup truck. That's my Yukon that my in-laws gave me. (laughs) You know? Yeah, I really earned it. You know? That's my this or my that. Don't, you know, you can borrow it, but you be careful. I want it back in a certain amount of time. That wasn't the attitude of the early church. One of of the things that happens in a believer is that their stuff will now become a vehicle to further the kingdom. Is that said of your stuff? There's a call from the book of Acts to generosity within the church. In Acts 4, they had possessions, but the issue was that they didn't claim that it was their own. Whatever they had a title to was just a means to an end in dealing with the pressing needs that were there of that day. Whatever I have, it's just a mean a means to further the kingdom, to get the name of Jesus out there so that my friend or my brother in Christ doesn't have to be pinched by the hard economic season or by his lack or by his job loss or by his ignorance or poor stewardship or unpreparedness. None of that matters. You don't read about that in the scripture. But there was one brother that, you know, he, mm-mm, yeah, they, they shunned him. He wasn't part of the commonness. Man, there's grace for that brother. I'm so glad because that brother is me. If I wouldn't have married an accountant, that, you know, oh man. When we got engaged, I bounced a check and Lindsay grabbed it and said, this will never happen again. Give me the checkbook. And you know what? It hasn't. 
Praise God. But the early church didn't selfishly hoard their things because the guy in need was irresponsible. They had all things in common. They had all things in common. The NIV says they shared everything they had. The NASB says all things were common property to them. You never heard in, in the early church, hey, can I you know, shoot quail on your property? Get off my lawn, brother. You know, that wasn't done back then. You know, all things were common property to them. In verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. So nobody lacked, nobody needed. My brother or sister over here needs X and I have X, Y, Z. Well, I'm going to give them Z so that they can have X. I see that there's a need. The Lord has given me an abundance and I'm going to give it willingly to supply where they lack. And I know what you're thinking. This sure sounds a lot like communism to me. (laughs) Well, what's wrong with that? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It has nothing to do with communism. It has everything to do with the spirit of God working in the hearts of people seeing a need. They say, I see that need and I can fill it. So I'm going to fill it. That's what it is. Communism says what's yours is ours. There's a forced giving to it. But koinonia says what's mine is yours. What's mine is yours. It's not communism. It's commonism. And that's what's in the church. You know, you guys have watched Russia fall. Why has Russia, this massive communist country, fallen and others like it are on their way while Christianity lasted when they share what seems to be common practice or common similarities? In fact, the basic axiom of communism is from every man according to his ability to every man according to his need. Sounds an awful lot like the book of Acts to me if you're, you know, if you're just trying to make a poem and get stuff that rhymes. Now, although we do, uh, we do share some goals in the race, communism and Christianity, we have an entirely different starting point that are worlds apart. Interesting that, uh, you know, there's some religious philosophy to uh, communism, even though it's anti-God. And if you look at uh, Karl Marx's life in the mid 1800s, he grew up in Germany in a Jewish home. They kept the law, they kept the Sabbath as much as possible, but then they had to move to another town. And when they moved to another town, dad had to take another job. And he starts to go out the door dressed in his suit on the Sabbath day. And Karl Marx says, where are you going, dad? It's the Sabbath. Well, son, in order to fit into this community uh, and, and to keep a job and to have success in that job, I have to work on the Sabbath. So we are now Lutherans. And Marx didn't like that. So he, when he grew up, he rebelled, he went to London and he began studying and he locked himself in a library in London and he wrote tons of writings. But one of the things that he wrote bitter and turned off by his dad was that religion is the opiate of the masses. Religion is the drug of the people. And he set out this agenda to basically destroy the masses, to, to destroy religion. And so he developed a new system of thought 
that uh, would experience what Charles Darwin was saying uh, physiologically or, or physiology, physiologically in that social sense. Communism was Darwin and evolution in the social sense. He borrowed it. Marx borrowed from Darwin. And you have Leon Trotsky, who was a famous spokesman for communists in the, communism in the 20s. And he said this right after Russian became, Russia became communist. He said, man will become immeasurably stronger, wiser, more subtle. His body will become more harmonious, his movements more rhythmic, his voice more musical. The forms of life will become dynamically dramatic. The average human type will rise to the heights of the Aristotle and Goyne and Marx. And above these heights, new peaks will rise. The Russian communist man will evolve, is what he's saying. In fact, they even looked at Stalin as a type of a messiah. In 1950, Pravda magazine, they said, if you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, think of him, Joseph Stalin, and you will find the competence you need. If you feel tired an hour, you should not think of him, Joseph Stalin, and your work will suddenly go well. If you are seeking a correct decision, Think of Joseph Stalin and you will find that right decision. They had their own Messiah. You know, they had their own sort of evolution. Little did they know that Stalin was going to turn out to be the worst mass murder in world history, responsible for 50 million Russian deaths, more than superseding Hitler. Now, Marxism and communism differs from Christianity, obviously, but let's look at why real quick. While some goals of sharing are shared, it comes from an entirely different place. And that the communist thinker believes that man is basically good. And that's the wrong way to study man from a biblical point of view, because the Bible says that man is entirely depraved. There is not one that seeks after God. No, not one. He can't even say something nice. He's got some ill motive. He's got some other plan. Read Romans chapter three. Men and women are creeps. They fell, they've sinned, and they're at war with God until they come to Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Man is inherently a sinner. He's imputatively a sinner and he needs a savior. He needs a Messiah. He's not going to become the Messiah through this great work ethic that communism had and somehow become a better man and help fellow man. And then finally we'll become this superhuman Russian communist guy. But instead we're going to realize we are nothing in and of ourselves. We're going to hell because of our sin against God and our rebellion in our heart against him and his holiness. And we need a redeemer. We need a savior. We need someone whose righteousness can be imputed to our account. And the minute you put your faith in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he begins to do the work in you of making you more like that righteous man, making you holy, making you right in God's sight. So man is not basically good. He's a sinner. Acts chapter four and Acts chapter two is based not upon political reformation, but spiritual regeneration. It's not about reforming us. It's about being born again and becoming a new creation in Christ. That's what it's about. And it's not political reformation that's needed in America or North Korea or Iraq 
or Iran or Afghanistan. It's spiritual regeneration. It's understanding that man is a sinner and the spirit of God needs to indwell him and change him because he can't do it on his own. And you know what? Capitalism just is fatally flawed. Rather than saying that man is inherently good and that he should just really work hard and become some superman, capitalism says man is a sinner So let's make him materialistic and lust after the things of this world. It's the opposite, but it's just as bad. And capitalists need to get their mind right. A kingdom mindset, just as much as the communists do. And there will not be peace in America until every man, woman, and child bows their knees to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Biblically, I don't think it's going to happen. I pray towards that end. I hope as many as possible. But I don't think that America is going to become some God-fearing country again. When Jesus comes back, every eye will see whom they pierced, and then they will fear, and then they will tremble, and then Jesus will be the president, and Jesus will be the king. And only then will it be any type of country that we can really be proud of. I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. Can't wait for that day. Man is a sinner. He needs a redeemer, and that's what will make this nation great. Communism lacked love, lacked compassion. And if you don't have compassion, your entire world, your home, your family, your nation, it's going to unravel. We're lacking compassion. We're no better than the communists. In 1940s, the 1940s, a famous communist orator stood up in a Russian park where there was a soapbox that people regularly stood and preached something from. So this communist orator stood up and he shouted out, A long speech, but at the climax of his speech, he said, You see that old man over there in that old ragtag suit? Yeah, we see him. Well, when communists are in charge, we will put a new suit on that old man. And everybody cheered. Yeah, new suit on old man, you know. But after he was done preaching his preach, his sermon, you know, a real biblical preacher got up and he said, I'd like to say a response to what this man said. If, if communists were in charge, I'd put a new suit on that old man. And I say this, when Jesus is in charge, he will put a new man in that old suit. And that's exactly what has happened in Acts chapter two and in Acts chapter four. We read of even properties were sold. And let's just read how the New King James Version puts it again. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. You might think you're in trouble if you're a homeowner right now. Well, the NIV puts it this way. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales, and then the proceeds were laid at the apostles' feet. Now, the action that we see here of this land selling, it was voluntary, it was infrequent, it was from time to time, and it was specific. They still had homes, but they and they still had their stuff, and it was theirs until they willingly gave it up to others. And so we have this example here that we can follow, that we would lay our resources at the foot of the local church, You know, so that we may do the things that the church are unable to do without those resources, ministering to people, being missionally minded. They laid the resources at the apostles' feet and the leadership of the church dispersed it as they knew of the needs and as they prayed over where it should go. And so the prescription for us in these passages is this, care for all at all times and in every circumstance. 
That's prescribed by the doctor. Sacrificial generosity. What we see as descriptive is the practice, okay? The way in which they did things in Jerusalem. It was not universal, nor did it continue. And even the influential Mennonite leader knew that. Now, not that there won't be another time, or maybe not that this is the time in this depression we're in nowadays, that something like that would happen again as the Holy Spirit would lead. But the principle is this prescriptive, universal, and timeless, that genuine care for those in need and sacrificial generosity constantly happens to ensure that there's no needy people in the church. It was believers. A little more on the giving that was happening in the early church. You know, Psalm chapter 24 verses 1 and 2 puts everything in perspective when it says the earth is the Lord's. And all of its fullness, the world and all who dwell in it. For he's founded upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. It's all his. Every single thing is his. Now, as we look at this giving, all giving must be done in the light of his generous giving. We're seeing that. Now we're going to read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, some passage, some verses from there. And it's just all through it. It's just dripping in give because he gave. Give because he gave. An indescribable gift. When we've given to God all we are and all we have, all we've given him is his own anyways. It's all his own. Romans chapter 11 says, who has given to God that God should repay him? You owe me, God. (laughs) Yeah, I really owe you. You know, God's not a debtor to any man. When when we think of all the resources we have, all the resources, and right now, maybe make a little list, some of your greatest resources or greatest assets. Keep in mind this, the three G's, grace, gratitude, and giving. Grace, gratitude, and giving. As we look at, The New Testament, and we look at the apostles, what does the Bible say in the New Testament about tithing? All this giving was happening, but what about tithing? Well, we know this, tithing was the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament. A tithe meant a tenth. Now, maybe the Lord chose tenth because he created us with ten fingers and ten toes. And so it's just a whole lot easier to do math, you know, when you got to get ready to go tithe. And, oh, I'm a uh, round to the zero, you know. Okay, that's me. I need that sort of simple. Thank you, Lord, for tithe, okay. I need that. Uh, and so the Old Testament has that tenth part as the basic pattern. You know, the Jews were instructed uh, to bring their tithes of cereal or grain and fruit and livestock. It all was to go to God. uh, This tithe or this tenth was paid to the Levites, and then the Levites would give a tenth to the priests. And so this principle just worked on top of itself. In Numbers chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 27, you can read about that. But this concept was established, and then in times of spiritual indifference, people kind of fell away from that, and the Lord would have to remind them of that pattern of giving. In Numbers or Nehemiah chapter 13 and 2 Chronicles 31, you read of these people that new seasons in life, coming back to the land, all of this stuff, and they're, they forgot the pattern that was there for them. And all I say all of that, that it's in Nehemiah and that it's in Second Chronicles, just to acknowledge there was an establishment of a pattern in the Old Testament. Okay? So what is a tithe? It's an Old Testament pattern. Now, 
tithing is not stated as an obligation in the New Testament. Can I hear an amen? Woo, glory! You know, all right. It's a pattern in the old, but it's not an obligation in the New Testament. If you look up tithing on your concordance or online, you're not going to find it in the New Testament except as referenced by Jesus to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And he's chiding them there. He's woeing them for their sure good at tithing, but they're horrible at compassion and justice. That's your great reference towards tithing in the New Testament. So on the matter of tithing in the New Testament, there's a silence as you read the New Testament. It's just not there. And you would think that Paul, who was a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock, you know, you'd think that he would have put a good old mentioning in there, uh, in one of his epistles at least, of tithing. Let's make sure we keep that practice up, you know. But it's not there. Some people say that it's there in the New Testament when it's not. And that's a scary thing because they're probably saying other things are there when it's not. Or they're not saying something's there when it is there. But tithing, you just don't see it there as an obligation. You can search the scriptures, see if these things are so. I plead with you to. We need to do that as the Bereans did. David Jackman, a, a, a modern day scholar, says that the New Testament emphasis on generous giving militates against the idea of a percentage levy. Since some would be able to give far more than the 10% and others for a time might not even be able to give that, If you think about it, the law of 10% lets a lot of people off the hook depending on the nature of their disposable income. It creates the notion that instead of everything belonging to God, only a tenth belongs to God and nine tenths belongs to me. You think that's wonderful. I can deal with losing that 10%, but I don't like, like the idea of God invading all of me, all of my accounts and all of my balances. You know, a New Testament Christian is, it is all the Lord's. It is all his. And Lord, I'm praying and I am seeking you for how much? How much goes to you? How much goes to the church? How much, you know, Lord, it's all yours. And I just give back because I'm so thankful. Realize as I give that I will get so that I can give again. It's a wonderful give and take relationship. The New Testament does not lay down the principle of the tithe for us. But neither does it set it aside. It doesn't set it aside. Just because it's silent of it doesn't mean that it's gone and we should never think of the tithe again. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that the Old Testament presupposition of giving a tenth is a horrible idea and we should never do it. You should seek the Lord and say, Lord, would it be best for my family? You know, is that just a good commitment to make to you that 10% and then if you want more, you know, then, then that's great. Or Lord, if one, if one month we're sensing the leading that should be less, but just commit to 10%, not wrong. That's not a good starting. I mean, that is a good starting point. If you're wondering how to give or how to discipline yourself in that uh, privilege of giving. But to make legislature, to make it a rule or a law that I haven't gotten your tithe check. Where is it? You know, I know I'm looking you funny this week. You know, I know. By the way, guys, I don't know who gives what. I never see that stuff. So if I'm looking at you funny, it's probably because I've gotten pink eye twice this year. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what that's all about. But I don't know what you are giving. Okay. You don't ever have to worry about me giving favorites or preaching something at you from the pulpit. I don't know those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
The chapter soars with the theology of the resurrection, and it's an exciting passage to read. And as you're reading of this beauty of the resurrection, and it's a proof that he's risen from the dead, and we in like manner will also rise from the dead. Then chapter 16, verse 1, or verse 2 actually says this, now about the collection. That's something that Paul would do, you know, theology. Now there's this important practicality of the collection that's needed for the Jerusalem church. And he goes on to say, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. So there was a collection from the saints. Now, I don't believe that either way is wrong, but of course there's the passing of the collection plate. That's a good, clear, obvious way to go. A little embarrassing if you forgot your check on the dresser that morning or whatever, but no one's thinking about you. They're all thinking about themselves. Dang it, I forgot my check on the dresser this morning or whatever. The usher's thinking as he hands the bag or the box, man, I forgot my check on the dresser this morning. You know, everyone's thinking that, you know, uh, not a bad way to go. Promotes a, a good unity, promotes remembering uh, you know, and uh, then you've got what we do here, the, the bucket in the back, basically, or the box in the back, the agape box is the spiritual way to put it. And that's a great way to go as well. It's a little more private. You're not really worrying about, except you have to push Mike out of the way, you know, to get to it. But, you know, uh, <clears throat> make a way, Mike, get out of the way, buddy. Um, you know, that's a good way to go as well, except even the most diligent of the givers can forget and we can, you know, we can leave and then we miss out and we're robbed of this blessing, this privilege of giving, you know, I'm the same way as diligent as I am. I forget sometimes. So, you know, but whatever the way we see that there was a collection that was giving, that was a mechanism of providing the resources for God's people. And so Paul says, set aside the money on a regular basis. So we see a regularity of it here. This regularity in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, shows us there was a sense of importance. Are you getting that? Because it was regular, it was important. The first day of every week, during our time of worship and sacrifice and praise. You guys, the needs of the people are regular needs. And so the collection needs to be regular as well. If there's an irregular giving going on, then the needs are met irregularly. That's unhealthy. You know, this is a, this is a little bit of a rod on my backside because I'm poorly disciplined. And I remember heights of revival and giving in my life that are not too high. But, you know, I'd say to Lindsay, honey, with tears in my eyes, I just want you to know. Every month, I want to write our tithe check. And I want to pray together about, you know, as we give this tithe check to the Lord. And that might have happened one time, four years ago. You know, my accountant wife writes the check and puts it in the lip of my Bible. And I'm supposed to drop it off, you know, until three tithe checks end up in the lip of my Bible. And I go, whoops, who looks in the lip of their Bible? I mean, honestly, okay. But there is a regularity because the needs are regular. There's a proportionate giving there in in 1 Corinthians 16. It keeps with your income. How does it put it there? Let each of you lay aside something, storing up as you may prosper. You know, this leaves the burden with the person. It's your burden. The good thing is, is we don't know what each other's income are. 
You know, I don't know. You know, it's whatever. It's proportionate to you. God knows if you're giving proportionately. God knows if I'm giving proportionally. And the starting point of the tithe is a good way to just look at the proportions. Are you giving proportionately? And we see it administered properly. Integrity. Paul treated the tithes and the offerings, uh, or, or just the offerings, if you want to just call them that, New Testament style, with such integrity. There was counting and double counting and an armed guard, or not armed, but you know, they would have bodyguards travel with the container of money back to Jerusalem, you know, because there should be no question. I love reading the Old Testament about the kings whenever there was a collection made for the repair of the temple. They didn't even need to get an accounting from the workers because it says that the account or the, the men, the workers, were men of integrity. That's an awesome thing. I'm not even worried about it. These are men of integrity. They're showing through their conduct that they are trustworthy in this. And yet, of course, we still are above board that if we should ever be audited, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Or if one of you wanted to come and look at the books, they're always open. You can see, uh, you can see where we're at there. But in Acts chapter 4, we see in this administered properly that it was given to one place, first of all, at the church, laid at the apostles' feet. And you read about it in Corinth laid at the church, distributed out as ever it was needed. Or, or the Macedonians gave that as a church, gave that gift. And so we see the first place of giving should be the local church. So the elders, spiritual leaders, given responsibility to exercise oversight, accountable before God, prayerfully seeking to where the, uh, the finances should be spent, where the needs are in the community or in the body. It seems self-serving to read, but it's in the Bible. So I'm just going to read it and you can do with it what you want. Galatians chapter six, verse six. Let him who is taught the word share in all things with him who teaches. Now, the church isn't the only place that we should be giving, but it's the first place. And you can look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. And the context is financial, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so the local church is the place to adequately and generously give financial assistance and it will be put out uh, so that it can go far beyond the church's borders as the needs are in the community and in the world. That is completely our heart. We want to be a church giving to missions, local and abroad. And I'm just going to share something with you and I just want you to go and pray about it. Uh, you know, there's, there's the two extremes of teaching on finances in the church. One guy, one of my favorite guys, like I've been here for six years and I've never taught on finances. And I was like, well, I think the economy might've been different because I've been here for one year and I've taught on it twice, you know, but praise the Lord, it's just where we're at in the word. Okay. I love that, <laughs> you know, uh, but as a church, whether it be for the economy or whatever reason for the last probably five months or six months, we've been significantly below our budget significantly, a couple thousand dollars below our budget as a church. That includes the building, the staff, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the lighting, the AC, the heat, all of that stuff, significantly low. We've had major board meetings, prayerful board meetings, where we have cut off the fat. We've laid off 
uh, Anthony from the Oasis. You know, we, we've tried to be good stewards and trim, not that Anthony was fat. He knows that he's a rock solid guy, you know, but we've trimmed off the fat. And then as time went on, man, we're still, we're overspending. We're not making it whatever for the economy or whatever the reason we're way under. And so we had another meeting and I said, we got to keep trimming the fat. And one of the guys says, Hey, we're cutting bone now, buddy. I'm like, all right, let's cut the bone, you know, cutting the bone making major cuts to only what is necessary. We have, uh, we have canceled the uh, youth building for now. Uh, you know, we, we can't afford the youth building. And so, you know, we can just trust, okay, Lord, just let nobody else rent it until the economy gets better, and then we can have the youth building again, you know? But that's just where we're at. I'm just letting you know, the extremes are never talk about it, you know? And so people don't know the needs or talk about it all the time and put a burden and just obligation on the people. That's not a good way to go either. So I'm just informing you, this last month, we were quite, quite substantially short in our budget I was looking for another job. Stuart is still looking for another job. And that's fine if that's where the Lord has us. I am willing to work. I want to rub shoulders with people in the community, share the gospel with them. I, you know, Paul, he said, hey, you know what? A worker is worthy of his wages, but I'm not going to abuse that, you guys. And I'll, I'll tent make if I have to. That is totally great if that is where the Lord has us. But if that's not where the Lord has us and we're just neglecting, we don't even think about giving, a tithe isn't even a concept in our mind, let alone any sort of sacrificial, generous giving, then there's cancer in the church. There's unhealth in the church. And we just need to come back and re-examine where we're giving. And if we're giving in proportion to our faith, liberally with what we've got, and that's not much, we're in Prineville, unemployed, this and that, praise God. We are a giving church and we can't give much, but we're a giving church. And we might have to go meet in a school again or, you know, this or that. But, you know, that's the need. That's the need. And and we just want to have everything before the Lord. And we go prayerfully on in this adventure where we're at financially as a church. But we want to give missionally. Last month, we canceled our gospel for Asia giving. We canceled our La Posada giving. We've, uh, we have no missional outgoing of funds now. We have no funds. They're just not there. And so may the Lord, you know, just, just pray. Let's just pray about it. Lord, what should I do? How can we give? You should, should Rory work so that he can, we can give towards missions. You know, we want to give to Gospel for Asia, La Posada. Man, if we could support the Redeemer House Orphanage, that's a ministry of this church. That's a beautiful thing. There's a ministry in Uganda that a woman from our church birthed. The Lord birthed through her. Lindsay hates it when I say birthed, but very fitting word, I think. We prayed a couple weeks ago for Travis Smith and his family, a Prinevillonian, Prinevillite who's going to Egypt indefinitely with Engineering Ministries International. I want, I had a meeting with them, like, my, my heart is to support you as a church. It's just not there, but keep praying, keep praying. He sends us his letters, and I post it on the bulletin board out there. You should read it. But what do we see in the early church? Regular, proportionate, sacrificial giving by everyone in the local church. It was personal giving. It was private giving, which makes it hard to talk about sometimes. And it was a spiritual thing. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 through 16, uh, he says, or 15 and 16, he says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Then it goes on, but do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Let's look over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'd looked in depth at this back in uh, December. 
But let's just flip over there. Man, when you think of giving, you should think 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You should own it. This is all pertaining to a gift for the uh, Jerusalem church that was, you know, they'd given everything they had and now they completely they didn't, they needed help. So Macedonia and Corinth, uh, they had purposed in their heart to send an offering. But Paul just writes to remind Corinth, hey, don't forget that you guys were going to have that an offering ready so that when I come through with the bodyguards to take the offering to Jerusalem, you guys aren't pulling pennies out of your pockets. You know, let's have it ready to go when we get there. Okay, so um, not first Corinthians. You know, I should have put a ribbon in there. It says this, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Man, if that's not talking about Prineville, I don't know what is. Poverty. They're a poor people. But what happened in this poor people? There was an abundance of joy because they loved Jesus and their deep poverty abounded in riches. They were liberal with their giving. Verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. So some neat principles of giving here that we should give proportionately according to our ability. Number two, beyond our ability. And this is when an offering becomes a sacrifice to us. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, you know, the best I can do with this notion of giving beyond our ability is that I can forgo a legitimate want in order to supply a legitimate need. I am prepared to squeeze myself so that others might not feel the more painful pinch. That's what giving beyond our ability is. And then notice they were freely willing to give. We see that illustrated in the generous widow of Luke chapter 21. And it's so awesome how when Jesus uses the classic illustration of giving, he uses a widow who wasn't worth two cents. That's an awesome picture that that little gal is there in Luke chapter 21. As she puts all of herself in the offering plate. Verse 4 imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Paul's saying, no, 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 you guys can't give to Jerusalem. You know, you're too poor. Don't you rob us the blessing of giving. You rob us, Paul, and you're in trouble. Let us give what we can give. And not only as we'd hope, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then do us by the will of God. Of course, in giving, we want you to give yourself first to Jesus and let finances or giftings or talents or time be an outflowing of that. Verse seven, but as you abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So giving is a grace. Giving is, is, is grace. Grace is giving. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now remember, when we talk about giving, it's all in reflection reflection of his giving. And Paul models that for us. Man, he who was rich became poor that we through him might become rich. We talked about this on Sunday. It's the concept of substitution. We were poor. He who was rich was our substitute and became poor that we might be rich. Jesus, our substitute. And in this, I give advice. It's to your advantage, not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but you also must complete the doing of it as there was a readiness to desire it. So there also may be a completion of what we have, you have. For if there's first a willing mind, it's accepted according to one one has. 
and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack and their abundance also may supply your lack and there may be an equality. So remember in Acts, they gave and there was nobody who lacked because everybody was always giving. What's mine is yours, man. Oh, thanks, man. But I want you to know when I have, it's going to be yours. All right, man. You know, there was, there was this constant common giving that was taking place there. It's a beautiful thing as these people gave themselves first to the Lord. There's the willing mind. We need to give from a willing mind, verse 12. Verses 13 and 14, uh, there's an equality. There's uh, to give to supply others lack. And then let's just jump down to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Therefore, and this is kind of that correction of make sure you've got it because rumors are that you have, you've kind of forgotten about this. Verse 5, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. And so our giving should be a matter of generosity or bounty. Speaks of willing to give unstingingly and not of grudging obligation. Grudging, speaking of resentment and ill feelings strong enough to retaliate. Man, if whatever I'm saying today causes you to be bitter towards me and I'll give, you know, and I hear the tithe box slam back there and it falls on the ground and Mike's got a big Easter egg on his head, you know. Oh, man, I must have just communicated it totally wrong. I do not want you to give out of obligation or grudgingly. Um, You know, obligation speaks of, you know, being bound to a payment and a penalty is given where there's failure to comply. Well, it's my duty. Man, that's not how it's to be done. In fact, I love how one man put it. If we give grudgingly, our approach is, well, I have to. Or if we give dutifully, it's, well, I need to. But if we give thankfully, our approach to giving is, I get to. I get to. Uh, Verse 6 But I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What an incredible promise there. Flip over to Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 8. You know, just a classic passage on that Old Testament principle and tithing, which I believe we can just glean from today. We're almost done here. Matthew 3, 8, or Malachi 3, 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. What a promise that is. No longer are we under the law and we give because we have to. Now we can give because we want to. We get to. We're thankful. The overflow of our heart gives. And the Lord just says, hey, as you're giving, there will be an overflow in your life. And not so you can just get all puffed up and, you know, just spend it on your own pleasures, but so you can give more, so that you can receive more. I love the concept that God has not made us warehouses to hold on to all the money and all the things that he gives us, but he's made us distribution houses. It comes in, I send it out. It comes in, I send it out. It comes in, I send it out. He sees that we're faithful in that. So there's never a lack. God is able to supply all those needs. We will never give generously without discovering afresh God's ability to supply our needs so that we can give generously again. We're just going to finish reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8 or 9 here. 
Verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Another concept in giving, just purpose in your heart. Not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful is hilarious. Man, just giving is hilarious. I'm so thankful. I just love to give. You know, better than the best night at the best comedy club, you know, is what giving is. I just am so overjoyed to give. Not grudging, you know, when you, Russell, make sure to share your candy with Kyla, you know. You know, Kyla, he really wants to give to you, but he just needs a little motivation right now. You know, that's us so often. You know, give cheerfully, hilariously. The Lord loves a hilarious giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he's dispersed abroad. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, if you look in chapter eight, verse one, the first thing that we see is that God has gifted. God has gifted. And then the last thing you see in chapter 9, verse 15 is what? God has gifted. And thanks be to God for his undescribable gift. When Augustine was asked advice on practical matters, he said this, love God and do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. How about with giving? How about today as we see the early church? Same concept there. Love God and do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. I think as you love the Lord, you're going to love his word. You're going to see the concepts in his word. And what you want to do is going to be what the word tells us to do. And as we look at giving, it's so good to thank God. Can we just read that verse 15 of last closer, chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What a way to end. Lord, we thank you that you are the giver While we were at war with you, you gave your only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the best gift we could ever ask for. We could ever hope for. And so Lord, in light of your giving, make us givers. May none of us consider our property to be our own, but Lord, may my stuff be their stuff. May your stuff be their stuff. Lord, help us to examine our giving. Help us to examine our possessions. Lord, make us aware of needs around us. And Lord, we know that unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain who build it. Lord, we believe that you are the source of life for this church. We don't worry for one second if you're going to sustain this church. Lord, if you don't sustain it, I don't want it here. Lord, just by your love, just show us how we can give or remind us to give where we've just been neglecting that privilege. Thanks be to God for your indescribable gift. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. Join us for the baptism. And if you believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, here is water. What hinders you? You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www calvarycrookcounty.com or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378 Prineville, Oregon 97754 Thanks again for listening and God bless.